Hi guys, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Cults and Crime. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie. And I'm your other host, Nicole. So today we are taking a small break from our Tracy Triangle collection collab thing. And we're giving you a nice, fun, old-fashioned true crime episode brought to you by Nicole. So I don't know how fun it's going to be, but I am ready to dive in. Okay, guys, so without further ado, Nicole, tell us the story. So today, I'm going to be talking about John Enel List, and a.k.a. the Boogeyman of Westfield. On November 9th of 1971, in the quiet town of Westfield, New Jersey, which is about 15 minutes outside of New York City, a milkman went about his day, picking up empty jars and replacing them with jars filled with milk. And just like any other day, except one house didn't have any empties. The 19-room Victorian mansion, in fact, had a note at the door, canceling all further deliveries. Not thinking anything of it, he had moved on. And if he would have stopped to knock on the door or look inside the window, he would have seen that this wasn't like any other day and everything was not okay. The home belonged to Helen and John List, devout Lutherans and staples of their community. They lived in this house with their three children, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick, and had even taken John's mother, Alma, in to stay with them in her own personal studio. But after a month went by, with no one coming in or out of the house, the neighbors grew suspicious. No matter what time of night, the light was always on, And slowly, one after the other, the lights started to go out, one bulb at a time. The children did have notes sent to the school explaining the family would be going out of town for a few weeks to help take care of a sick relative, but the teachers grew really concerned as, well, they were missing over a month of school at this point. The neighbors chose to contact police to have them look, informing them that the family was on a trip, but... They didn't know John's mom had gone with them, and without seeing her for a couple days, they were really worried that she'd fallen and gotten hurt somehow. Officers had parked on the street and walked up to the house, knocking on the door. But nobody answered. Okay, well, that's fine. They're supposed to be out of town. Maybe they did take the mom with them. They looked around the house, and everything seemed normal. They found an unlocked window, and I'm assuming just to be thorough, th- I'm assuming just to be thorough, they had climbed into the window to get inside the house and began looking around. Everything again seemed completely normal. Maybe they had just left all the lights on by mistake, as well as the radio, which was loudly playing gospel music. They passed into the butler's pantry into the kitchen where they noticed deep red stains marking the floor. Continuing their search, two large red drapes closed shut once opened. They knew exactly where the stains had came from. Several bodies tucked together in sleeping bags laid on the floor in a row with their faces covered. The officers called for anyone if they were okay, if they were alive, but no luck. The bodies were Helen and her three children, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick. 
They had all been shot once in the head except for John, who had been shot multiple times. Still missing was Alma and John. While the officers had waited for backup, they began their search in the 18-bedroom mansion. Every time they opened a door, they had no idea what they would find. After 45 minutes of searching, they made it to Alma's third-floor apartment. Inside, laid Alma. She had been shot in the head and appeared to have been unmoved, unlike all the other victims. That makes the only member of the household still unaccounted for was John. It wasn't long into the search in John's office where they found a five-page letter addressed to his pastor. The letter had dated back four weeks prior and took full responsibility for his family's murder. He claimed he was near bankruptcy. This bankruptcy was due to the sinful world around him, and he hoped by killing his family that he would spare them from the life of poverty. Ending his letter by saying, P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic. She was too heavy to move. See, outside their large home, looking in, they seemed to have the perfect house and the perfect all-American life. But inside, things were crumbling. John had felt trapped by a series of events starting at the very beginning of his marriage. After knowing her for three months, she had claimed to become pregnant with John's child. John, wanting to do the right thing, had immediately reposed and they had immediately got married, only to find out that she wasn't pregnant at all. Wanting to make the best of it, they had stayed together and had three children within a span of four years. During this time, John had struggled to hold down even a simple job, not for work performance, but purely because people felt like he was off. John had eventually landed a well-paying job as a vice president of a bank, and and they immediately moved their family into one of the nicest houses in town. But John again felt like he was trapped. He didn't want this large house, but due to his everly growing family and pushy wife, he had felt like he had to buy the house. And things didn't improve when his mother moved into the house as well. But the real tipping point was when John yet again lost his job. Pride and shame keeping him from telling his family he would get dressed up every single day in his suit, drive himself to the train station, and take it until a couple stops away. Overwhelmed and beaten down, John List began turning his anger towards his family. He had resented his mother for years and years, and he resented his wife for tricking him into marrying him in the first place, and he even resented his children. He had mulled over his options. He could not commit suicide. It was a mortal sin in the eyes of the church. He did think about running away and leaving it all behind, but his pride wouldn't allow that either. Poverty itself to him was a sin, and he feared he was condemning everyone to welfare and food stamps and internal damnation. This is when he had made the choice to murder his entire family, to save them from damnation, and hopefully he would be able to gain God's forgiveness. The morning of the murder, he had got dressed and went downstairs to share breakfast with his family. Just like every other day, he watched them eat breakfast and he and head off to school. But instead of John going to the train station like he usually would, he went to the garage and prepared his guns. 
He then went back inside, and while Helen was having her morning cup of coffee, he had spoke with her. Then he went back to the garage, and with his gun in hand, he shot his wife. Systematically, he walked upstairs to where his mother was eating breakfast. She gave him a kiss on the cheek and asked what the noise was. He kissed her cheek back, and as she walked away, he shot and killed her as well. He then went downstairs to clean up the house for the children to return for school, moving his wife's body into the ballroom into the ballroom, and writing letters to his children's schools about their future absences. He went to the bank and withdrew all of his money, gave the letters to the post office to be delivered to the school. After he came home, he made himself a sandwich and waited. The first to return from school was his daughter, Patty. She walked into the house and went to the kitchen, and at this point, John Liss snuck up behind her and shot her in the back of the head, quickly moving her body on top of his sleeping bag beside her mother. Next to come home was the youngest, Frederick, who was shot in the back of the head as well and had his body dragged to lay beside his sister and mother. Then John Liss got into his car and drove down to the school to watch his middle son, John Jr., play his soccer game. After the game, they both got in the car and drived home. They walked through the kitchen door, and that's when John shot and killed him in the back of the head. Unfortunately, he didn't instantly kill him, so he shot his son a total of 10 more times before, like his mother and sister, dragging him to the ballroom and laying him on top of sleeping bag. With his task complete and the house cleaned, he had another meal in the same room where he had shot down his entire family before heading to bed on the same mattress that he'd shared with his wife only just the night before. With a restful night's sleep, the next morning he executed his getaway. Turning the thermostat down to 50 degrees to keep the body from decomposing, turning all the lights on in the house, and turning the radio up high to his favorite station. The authorities didn't waste any time starting a nationwide manhunt. Only two days later, they located John List's Chevy Impala in the parking lot of JFK. JFK being an international airport, he could have gone virtually anywhere, especially with nearly a month of a head start. Making matters worse, John had gone to incredible lengths to cover himself up. He had gone through every single photo the family had and cut out his face. Keeping in mind this is 1971, with these photos destroyed, there wasn't a whole lot of photos to go off of, and the trail had gone cold. Nearly 15 years later, John had been had been nowhere to be found. The FBI had gotten involved, and he had moved up to the FBI's list of becoming America's most wanted. Every year, the FBI received hundreds of letters and tips, all without any real leads. Following every letter, hoping to get close, hoping to get close, he was a mystery man. He became infamous in the FBI, and by 1988, a new TV show had appeared, America's Most Wanted. And the FBI knew exactly who they wanted to showcase. And at first, they were turned down, with no leads on where he went or what even he looks like. This wasn't a strong show, but the FBI was persistent and went as far as giving the show gruesome details about the murder until they finally agreed to show the case. John's List, John List became the oldest FBI's most wanted case to be shown on the show. When it aired, it aired all over America, even in the small town of Richmond, Virginia. See, John had never boarded the plane. 
or any plane for that matter. Instead, he went by train to Denver. He changed his name and started working as a line cook at the hotel. He'd eventually started working as an accountant and remarried a widow from the church before moving on to the sleepy town of Richmond, Virginia. He had spent his weekdays working and weekends gardening and watching TV. One of his favorite shows being America's Most Wanted. In fact, he liked the show so much, he told multiple of his friends to watch it as well. He watched as his episode of America's Most Wanted aired, and the producer of the show even making a sculpture of what John would potentially look like, changing his glasses to the most popular ones of the time. Over 200 tips came in, one being from Denver, Colorado. A past neighbor of John's had swore her neighbor was the one. The man, his neighbor had swore her neighbor, the neighbor had swore that John was her neighbor and that was the man on the TV and that he had just moved with his new wife. 11 days later, the FBI had appeared at John List's doorstep, arresting him for the murder of his wife, two sons, daughter, and mother. He was sentenced to life in prison and gave several interviews, one being where I got a ton of the information. So Jamie, John List was diagnosed by a psychologist with obsessive compulsive disorder. And according to them, once he had made that decision to murder his family and got it stuck in his head, he had no choice but to follow through. And in his interviews, he even says that he felt relief once it was done. You know, that's actually kind of interesting. So we actually covered this kind of thing when we did my psych- abnormal psychology class. And we were brought up the example of Jeffrey Dahmer. So he watched interviews with him and he's like, it was like a compulsion. I couldn't help myself. I had to kill them. It was a compulsion. And I was talking to my professor about it. I'm like, oh, well, do you think, you know, serial killers have that compulsion? Is it like a form of, o- you know, OCD? And he told me, absolutely not. People with OCD, like, it's not like that. And like, it would be a really long explanation to explain why it's not like that. I suggest you guys do your own research on OCD and watch videos of people with OCD. But like people with OCD is like, you don't have this compulsion to kill people. You know, you have compulsions to clean your hands because you're afraid of germs. You have compulsions to, you know, touch a doorknob a few times because you're afraid if you don't, your grandma's going to break her hip. Like we watched a video of a woman where she was so afraid of germs, like anytime, so afraid of germs that she had OCD, but then she had a child and it became worse where she had to wash her hands before touching her baby. So her hands were like raw from washing her hands so much because every time her kid cried, she wanted to pick him up, but she had to wash her hands first. So the idea that, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder somehow caused him to be obsessed with the idea of killing his family is a bit absurd to me. You know, I'm obviously I don't have my degree yet. I'm not a professional, but like that's just my own personal opinion from what I know of OCD. Yeah, I'm obviously not a psychologist, and that's just in the interview, that's what they stated. That So it wasn't necessarily that he had a compulsion that he had to murder. It was more of a compulsion to finish his plan. That he had no way out, and he figured that the only way out was to murder his entire family and run away. And I, I'm not a psychologist, and I obviously can't really speak. And I, like it's hard for me to even really grasp, and 
I'm not saying that because he had OCD or he, you know, he had obsessive compulsive disorder that it's okay that he murdered his family. It's obviously not. But, you know, you try to think of like why somebody would do that. These are people that he loved. And he even says it in the interview. Oh, I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my mom. But when he talks about them, it's cold. Like, like I said, personally, I think it's just one of those things, like a story you tell to mitigate things to the court. I don't think it has anything in, I don't have, I don't think it has any basis in reality. You know, OCD is like, it's, so it's, it's, um, excessive compulsive disorder. And basically it's like, we, like, like you can tell someone has it because they have like thoughts that cause them to do actions obsessive actions you know like i said like op like opening a door opening closing a door four or five times just to make sure that it's shut you know and people have this every day you know like i'm sure you've been out somewhere and be like oh man did i leave the oven on did i lock my front door the only problem is like as a person who doesn't have this disease you can tell yourself yeah you probably did don't worry about it or someone who does have ocd would literally have to go back home and check to make sure the door is shut so let me just read. Um, this is from thecriminalcode.com, and there, and I'll read up his psych, his psych profile to you, Jamie. Um, it says, in some ways, John List is the blueprint for what I think of a family annihilator. While most people see him as cold and an unfeeling monster, it's his insecurities that stand out to me the most. John List was afraid. He was terrified, you see. In John List's mind, being a public disappointment in front of his family was a fate worse than death. And not just for him, but for them too. Which qualified him as narcissist as well. Narcissists typically don't have the ability to truly put themselves in someone else's shoes. Instead, they exploit their own feelings and put them on others. It's their wounds. If they're wounded, you would be too. That's just how it goes in the fragile bubble world. So very fearful, check. Narcissistic, check. The final prize of the family annihilated puzzle, and it's likely the most important piece is an unyielding rigid system Johnless prison psychologist would say that he was obsessive compulsive but i'd say it went a lot further than that it wasn't just anxiety about things being certain ways it was near delusional when john list explained his reasoning for the murders years later he stated that he believed he was saving his families he said i finally decided that the only way to save them from the public embarrassment and falling from christian faith was to kill them he said I feel like we get to go to we get to go to heaven. We won't worry about these earthly things. They either have forgiven me or I won't even realize, you know, what happened. When asked why John List didn't th then kill himself like his own fa like many family nighters do, he responded, "It was my belief that if you kill yourself, you won't go to heaven." So eventually I got to the point where I felt that I could kill them. Hopefully they would go to heaven, then maybe I would have a chance to later confess my sins to God and get forgiveness. And it was this staunch belief system, combined with the paralyzing fear of failure and a big splash of narcissism that allowed John just to do what he does. So that's all I have for you guys today. Next week, we will be right back with another episode of Cults and Crime. That's right, guys. We're continuing our Tracy Triangle segment with a brand new episode that is going to keep you on the edge of your seats, I promise. But you're going to have to tune in next week to hear it. Okay, guys, we're going to see you next week. Have a good week. And remember...